good afternoon, everyone, and let me just start out by thanking uh, Mohamed Salah and Philippe for the uh, kind invitation to uh, participate here today. And Philippe, thank you also for uh, this presentation about uh, the Fragebogen, the questionnaire, because uh, uh, German post-war history and coming to terms with the past is one of my hobbies, I would say. Um, and I actually was not aware of that book, so I just ordered it from the university library. I can see it's a pithy little thing of 800 pages. Uh, so I guess the, uh, the reading for the Easter break is set, right? Um, good. Um, uh, the title of my presentation, the way I announced it, is Voices of Suffering, the Incorporation of Victim Testimony uh, in Judgments of the ICTY. And that's changed a bit, uh, but I still want to start with that title. Um, and so what I want to do today is to say that um, I'm using this, exploiting the opportunity of this symposium and also I, I should just underline, as I already told some of you last night, I'm actually delighted to finally be going to a symposium where I don't know anybody, um, which is very refreshing um, because I'm hearing a lot of different perspectives. Um, uh, and uh, I would like to get your input, particularly those of you who specialize in uh, the study of literature, as to how I might, as a historian, better approach this theme of victim testimony at the ICTY, which we have up here. Um, let me just start by saying that um, uh, this is an institution that is now formally closed. It was active. Um, uh, we, this morning we heard a bit about the Rwanda Tribunal, which was set up around the same time. Uh, so the ICTY was the Yugoslavia Tribunal. It was active for, uh, from 1993 until 2017. And uh, a total of 161 people uh, were tried at this tribunal uh, during this period for uh, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide. Uh, over 4,500 witnesses testified in these trials, um, which often lasted for years. Uh, of these witnesses, a considerable number were victims of crimes who had not only witnessed atrocities, but had themselves suffered grievous physical, sexual, and mental harm in the wars in Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Kosovo and Macedonia. Uh, indeed, ICTY judge Patricia Wald went so far as to claim that, quote, victim witnesses are the soul of war crimes trials at the ICTY, end quote. So this is the particular category of witnesses I'm interested in here, victim witnesses. From the very first conviction in the late 90s of a low-level perpetrator until the final verdicts against some of the most notorious and high-ranking perpetrators, you've probably heard of Radovan Karadzic and Radko Mladic, uh, the trial chambers at the ICTY uh, uh, obviously relied tremendously on uh, victim testimony. Many of the victims had led unremarkable lives as ordinary citizens of Yugoslavia until the violent disintegration of that country. And I would say that you know, without uh, their courageous and often harrowing testimony, it would have been impossible to prove uh, many of the crimes. Obviously, therefore, the judges had to rely extensively upon them. Uh, however, as has been discussed by Lawrence Douglas, Devin Pendas, and other scholars of Holocaust atrocity trials, the non-linear, pathetic, and often overly detailed of testimonies of victims present a lot of challenges and often frustrations for the judges and vice versa. In principle, the judges at the ICTY could have adopted a narrowly legal and clinical approach to victim witness testimony. In practice, however, 
some of the judgments of the trial chambers chose to quote at length from the victims, thereby highlighting their humanity, as well as the barbarous nature of the crimes that they suffered. And what I want to do today is just talk about a few specific cases um, uh, that I've looked at and explore them a little bit. And then I want to talk about a little bit uh, about my book, which was published on Friday uh, in Denmark, and where I basically decided to use victim testimony extensively as a way of making the Danish public uh, without any necessity of, of, of uh, previous knowledge better understand, as, as the title suggests, why this could happen here, why it could happen in any society, including, uh, for that matter, Denmark. Um, now, it just is worth briefly noting that if you look at international criminal justice, one of the things that people uh, who don't work with this on a daily basis tend to forget is that uh, the Nuremberg trials, which got everything going, were not really about the Holocaust. Um, and Jews, and especially victims uh, who were Jews, but also other kinds of victims, were virtually absent. Almost all of the evidence in Nuremberg was documentary evidence. The Germans were supreme record keepers, and they, you know, their records, which were confiscated and seized, uh, were, provided the bulk of the evidence. Um, and, uh, but it's worth recalling, uh, and, and just also when we talk about witness testimony, Robert Jackson, the chief prosecutor at Nuremberg, said that the main challenge in trying mass atrocities was to, quote, establish incredible events by credible evidence, end quote. Um, and although the office of the prosecutor, uh, the OTP for which I worked in The Hague, followed their ancestors at Nuremberg by placing significant emphasis on the use of documentation, witness, especially victim witness testimony, played a much more important role than in Nuremberg. Uh, several categories of, of witnesses exist. I was an expert witness in five trials. I was also cross-examined by Radovan Karadzic in his trial. Um, but this is not about my type of testimony, it's about the actual victims. So victim witnesses are those witnesses who themselves became victims as a result of being present during the commission of atrocities, even if they were not personally, physically harmed in these atrocities. Without exception, all of them stemmed from the former Yugoslavia, although many of them had, prior to testifying at the ICTY, been resettled to other countries as refugees. And since we have a, a strong francophone element of, at the um, uh, conference today, I would just mention that uh, one of the most poignant testimonies, which I'll come back to, was of a witness who now lives in France. She has been resettled as a refugee in France, and she insisted on testifying in French precisely because she feels that she wants to basically cut all ties with this country that fell apart which, and, and where she uh, experienced enormous trauma. So uh, over, uh, it also though is um, worth keeping in mind that often years or even decades, I mean 2017 is over the two decades after the end of uh, the war in Bosnia, uh, had elapsed between the occurrence of the events about which they were testifying and their appearance as witnesses in The Hague. Now, it's neither new nor controversial to observe that the primary objective of criminal trials is to assess the guilt of the accused. Uh, it follows that a competent uh, professional trial chamber, including judges, prosecutors, and defense attorneys, will duly structure the introduction, presentation, and evaluation of evidence so as to achieve this common objective. 
already here we can see an enormous tension between the desire and indeed need of many, if not all, of the victims to unburden themselves. I mean, they're finally here now on this great international scene and share their stories in as much detail as possible with, uh, with the, and on the other hand, the economic and time constraints of a criminal court or tribunal, because if we just let every witness tell their full story, it would have lasted even longer. And I again stress these are trials which already lasted literally for years, right? Um, critics have argued that, uh, quote, when this tension is resolved in favor of the requirements of justice, the needs of individual victims are overlooked so that justice is not done to them and to what they have to say, end quote. So there's a, there is a strong and very critical literature that says uh, these, these trials uh, tr traumatize or re-traumatize the witnesses. These uh, trials are, um, uh, are inconsiderate of the victims that they purport, uh, purport to represent. Uh, I want to say that I understand that criticism and I respect a lot of it. But it also has to be said that if um, that most of the authors of, of such criticism end up saying, well, the only alternative was not to have the trials. Um, and then I think actually, I have spoken to a lot of witnesses myself. Um, I think they would still have preferred to have the trials given the choice. Um, now, a little bit about the structure of the judgments as I move here to the more technical part. Um, needless to say, judgments are legal documents. They're not uh, 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 novels, they're not short stories. As such, their primary purpose is to set forth the trial chamber's verdict of guilt or innocence of those individuals accused in a particular case. Judgments typically introduce the counts of the prosecution's indictment, then very dryly discuss the applicable law. Did I mention I'm not a, a lawyer? Um, Review the factual and legal findings based on the evidence, are we asleep yet, uh, presented by the prosecution and the defense, then discuss the criminal responsibility of the accused, and then conclude by pronouncing the accused guilty or innocent as regards each point of the indictment, and finally pronounce the sentence, right? Um, judgments, it should be mentioned, range in size from several hundred to several thousand pages. In the cases I examine here, the shortest uh, are Stakic and Kurstic at a pithy 260 or 290 pages. And on the other end of the scale is the Karadzic judgment, which is precisely 2,615 pages. As will be evident from this overview, there are large sections of the judgments that contain no witness testimony at all. However, all cases relied on such victim witness testimony. In Galic, for example, 171 witnesses were heard. Of course, only a subset of these were victim witnesses and only portions were quoted in the judgments. Now, it was my original intention when I got uh, the opportunity to participate here today to say, okay, well, I'm going to go in, I'm going to read what they quote verbatim and then talk about that. However, my review of these judgments, as happens when you start on these journeys, revealed that the trial chambers only rarely did so at length, choosing instead to summarize and paraphrase the, victim, uh, the testimony of victim witnesses. This finding pointed me towards a concern that with the closing of the tribunal, the testimony of the victims would to a significant extent become buried in the archives. Um, and voluminous transcripts of the tribunal lost to all but a few connoisseurs of Yugoslav history and international criminal justice. I mean, honestly, who amongst you can raise your hand and say that you're going to read 2,615 pages of the Karadzic uh, 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 judgment? I haven't done that, and I worked at the place. Um, to give one ex uh, then you can go to the transcripts, 
But to give one example, the transcripts of the Stockage trial alone span to 15,362 pages. That's one of the shorter trials. And that is a trial focusing predominantly on one municipality and the crimes committed there. This in turn leads to a pressing question which I share with you today. Is it possible to rescue or salvage witness testimony from oblivion? Uh, and if so, how can this be accomplished? Needless to say, I make no claims here that the testimonies of victim witnesses at the ICTY are a priori of higher value than the atrocity stories of the large majority of victims who never testified at the ICTY but suffered the exact same atrocities. However, the advantage is that the testimonies of ICTY victim witnesses are identifiable, they're accessible in a manner that renders them available to the interpretation, to their interpretation and further dissemination outside the courtroom. So question of reception, who reads the entire judgments anyway? Probably not a lot of people. And then I also uh, want to say, well, then how do we rescue that? How, if, I, if I want to tell these stories, and I, I, I'm, I hope to persuade you that these are stories worth telling outside of the courtroom, um, I, I, one of the questions I have for you today is, would we read or would we present a victim witness's testimony differently if we wish to do so from a literary point of view? And if we do that, are we doing some kind of violence or injustice to that testimony? Um, so uh, to just, uh, just to help you out a little bit, I want to just show you, uh, as I briefly march through these cases, and I, I will do so very quickly, um, the cases that I'm interested in uh, as a selection, uh, and I could have chosen many others. I said there's 161 accused. So we have, for example, the case of Stanislav Galic, sentenced to life imprisonment. He was one of the generals who commanded the siege of Sarajevo. It's one of the longest sieges in modern history. Um, uh, witness testimony is deployed throughout to convey not just the events of Sarajevo, but also the mood of those enduring it. So we have witness Tari Kupusovic, who's a member of the town council. I quote, um, uh, we had a horrible feeling that was something wrong. We couldn't believe what was happening around us. Many of the most poignant descriptions of the harrowing dangers faced by citizens of Sarajevo during the siege uh, came from witnesses. Uh, for example, um, I mean, in, in a horribly beautiful phrase, one of the witnesses quotes, we were happy when there was a thick fog in town and around it during winter because then there would be no sniping. I mean, these are things that really evoke what it meant to be living in a, in a city under siege. Uh, another witness said that she never went out alone during the siege because she was afraid of what would happen to her three children if she were wounded or killed without their knowledge. Um, uh, in the judgment of Galic, uh, scheduled sniping and shelling incidents, what, they, what that means is they, they can't possibly look at everybody who was killed by sniping, so they have to make a schedule of, of selected witnesses who were victims of that and tell their stories. So this is where we really get the focus. Um, in, a, in a quite different case, uh, we have, for example, the, uh, down here, the uh, uh, Stockage, oh, of course, uh, excuse me. Here's the Stockage case, um, uh, a former anesthesiologist uh, who became mayor of a town and basically oversaw the creation of the concentration camps that you probably remember hearing about in 1992. Um, 
Here we see many victims testifying poignantly about how they simply could not fathom that their society and state were collapsing around them. That's kind of almost, in a way, I started also thinking, that's also a fascinating narrative, not just the, the atrocities that they suffered. So yes, we can highlight, as we also did earlier today, the stories of torture, the stories of assault, the stories of murder, of surviving mass executions. But I think it's also worth trying to capture these tales of people describing how their state and society was disintegrating around them. One of them, one testimony I read last week was a man describing how everyone in his town had loved their, uh, their local practicing um, uh, doctor. Uh, and suddenly, however, rumors had been spread uh, that that doctor was allegedly forcibly st sterilizing Serbian women. And within days, the doctor disappeared and no one knows where he exists today. So very quickly we see a complete slide into criminal depravity uh, in, in what was by citizens of all ethnicities described as a well-functioning community. Uh, an even better example, and uh, since there's limited time, uh, I'm moving quickly through the, these, um, is uh, Milan Lukic, another person who um, uh, is... Um, uh, sentenced to life in prison, and for those of you with uh, uh, Argentinian connections, I would just mention he was actually arrested in Buenos Aires, where he ran a pizzeria called La Bomba. Um, um, uh, but uh, but uh, this is a man who, among other things, uh, raped uh, teenage girls uh, in Visegrad. Uh, since we're at a literary symposium, I, I would just note Visegrad, the city whose bridge was made famous by Ivo Andrić in the Nobel Prize winning novel, The Bridge Over the River Drina. Um, this is the man who was responsible for throwing people into the Drina in 1992. Uh, and uh, really, uh, I mean, one of the direct perpetrators. Um, here we see in the judgment um, a much greater tendency to include block quotes of witness testimony and generally speaking uh, also to include more direct witness testimony, particularly when sexual crimes are concerned. It's as if the judges wanted, um, felt a need to quote the victims at greater length than elsewhere to emphasize the depravity of the crimes that Lukic and his cousin, who was also uh, convicted, um, uh, uh, had committed in, in Visegrad in 1992. Now, there's a lot of choices when we confront victim witness testimony. Um, questioning their veracity can, of course, be, uh, appear callous. Of course, on the other hand, we shouldn't uh, take it for granted. Um, uh, and broadly speaking, uh, we face a difficult choice um, whether we, um, in a way, uh, approach it in a more scientific, calculating manner or in a more emotional manner. I think the, the, the advantage we have now with the, the judgments and with the testimony of the victim witnesses is these trials are over. These uh, witnesses have, as it were, survived cross-examination we can, through the vehicle of the judgments, and also by going through and reading the totality of their testimony, excavate, in a way, uh, their entire stories and now present them, if we wish to do so, in a more uh, compassionate um, manner um, uh, for the general public than it was possible for judges and others to do, prosecutors to do, within the context of this testimony. Um, and it's, uh, it's important uh, to note that there's some precedence for doing so. For example, the Dutch author uh, Selma Leidesdorf has uh, written a book 
um, where she's argued that even as regards the Srebrenica genocide, un unquestionably the most notorious crime of the wars of Yugoslav succession, all too many stories have been about the Dutch soldiers and the international uh, peacekeepers involved, and very few about the actual victims. To Leidesdorf, the problem with the testimony of victim witnesses at the ICTY is that, quote, the accusatory has become the main force of di form of discourse when talking about the war. Legal witnesses give a different kind of account than what I am interested in, end quote. Yet some of the victims, Leidesdorf herself, quote, uh, quotes are extremely accusatory. And another problem is pre uh, presented by uh, the way in which we approach uh, this testimony, whether uh, we, do we, do we preference, and is it wrong to preference the victims who testified in The Hague, or should we go looking for others? I would argue that if we wish to further popularize, uh, which I think is important, the stories of the victims of the conflicts in the former Yugoslavia, we should not by any means restrict ourselves to the victims who testified at the ICTY, but we should perhaps start with them because at least we know they've already agreed to share their stories with us. When, when I um, uh, had a choice in preparing my own book, one of the things I did was, I, uh, when, when I was in doubt, I tried to contact the actual witness and say, look, I know that you've told this story, it's in the public domain, but now I'm writing a book, how do you feel about me using this in the book? And to my great surprise and great gratitude, all of them that I talked to were enthusiastic about this because they said, yes, my story was heard in The Hague, but now it will be heard even more broadly, right? So to wrap up, I would prefer not to suggest um, um, uh, what genre of literature uh, uh, recollections or you know, stories based on ICTY's testimony should belong to, they could in principle provide the basis for a literature that could fit into a variety of genres. Um, I'm approaching it um, from a historical point of view and I do want to just highlight and share with you why I ended up, because that was not the plan when I started writing this book, why did I end up, uh, uh, when I tell about Srebrenica, most of my chapter on Srebrenica, I start as you would expect a historian to start, but then all of a sudden I say, at that very point in time, on a hill overlooking Potocari, Witness O, that's a protected witness from The Hague, was standing together with a group of several hundred men, and then I proceed to tell his story. It's an extremely poignant one. At one point, he, he pleads, uh, he says, I pleaded with them, uh, uh, they could kill me, but please just give me a drink of water first. I mean, it's, it's incredibly evocative. Guess what? It's not in the judgment. It's in his testimony. And I think it's incredibly important that that kind of testimony of surviving the genocide of Srebrenica be shared. But it was in fact my editor who said to me at one point, they were, they were you know, no, no, no author likes to admit this, but they were basically, although they'd commissioned the book, they were ready to reject the book. And the reason for that was, I said, well, what's wrong? I'm, I'm doing what you asked me to do. They said, well, Christian, you are a historian, but what is happening here is history is writing you you need to write history. And so um, maybe include individual stories that will make you know, this narrative more human. And I thought, what better way to do that than to excavate and highlight some of these stories of the, the victims. So I think I'll stop there. Um, 
but I'd really like to hear your input on where you think this could go. And you know, there's also video testimony, like has been done with the the Holocaust testimony at the uh, Wiesenthal Center. Uh, 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 but I'm interested to hear your input. Thank you very much.